This is Michael Krasny, and this is Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, and I welcome you to another episode. In this episode, we focus our attention on the ongoing crisis and tragedy in the Middle East and the war that has broken out and is ongoing between Hamas and Israel following a bloody and deadly attack by air, sea, and land last Saturday by members of Gaza-based Hamas, designated by the United States and the European Union as a terrorist group. It was a killing and abducting attack into the southern region of Israel across the border from Gaza. In this episode, we're going to discuss the ongoing crisis and its many dimensions with Amichai Magin, Ph.D., who is visiting professor at Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. He also heads the M.A. program in Diplomacy and Conflict Studies and heads the program on Democratic Resilience and Development at Reichman University's Lauder School of Government, Diplomacy and Strategy. And he is author of Towards a Comprehensive Security Approach in the Middle East and Lessons from the European Experience in Justice and Home Affairs Cooperation. And I welcome Amichai Maki. Thank you, uh, Michael. It's um, good to be with you. I wish it was under uh, happier circumstances, but I'm a great admirer of your, your work. Thank you for that. I, too, wish it were under better circumstances. And, uh, well, we can just talk about where we are and where this is all headed. It is grim. It is dark. It is very upsetting, I think, to both sides. Uh, Many moving pieces. Uh, I would recommend initially the article that you did, which I thought was excellent in persuasion, called This Was Never Supposed to Happen. Uh, and you call it Israel's civic Yom Kippur because in the Yom Kippur War of many years ago now, uh, there were no civilians that were killed, no civilians who were abducted. Uh, so this is an entirely different kind of war. Uh, it's also a war that bears out terrible failing of security. And I want to get to that right away with you because Mossad and Shin Bet were supposed to be almost invincible. Uh, maybe there was too much complacency. Certainly um, there were too many resources in the West Bank and there were sensors and tech equipment that was really undermined and uh, set in uh, the direction away from of efficacy. But how much was the weakness that was perceived by Hamas because of internal political division part of this? It was certainly a part of this, uh, Michael. As you know, over the last uh, year, Israel was uh, uh, polarized um, to an extraordinary uh, degree. Um, we tend to have a sense of Israel as being a very powerful state, a very cohesive, a state that watches its enemies uh, very carefully. But Israel's enemies also watch Israel uh, very uh, carefully, and they detected uh, division and uh, weakness and uh, distraction and a kind of loss of trust by uh, the Israeli population and the Israeli government. And that created uh, an opportunity uh, for them, which they tragically exploited, right? When we think about power and how, how uh, what makes a, a country and a society powerful, uh, we tend to uh, emphasize the technological capabilities, the military capabilities, but fundamentally power is also about spirit and it's about cohesion. We see that in Ukraine. We see uh, that countries that have cohesion and uh, spirit uh, and uh, unity are able to fend off much more powerful adversaries Whereas powerful countries that lose that sense of cohesion um, uh, can can appear very very vulnerable. That, that that is certainly a factor here, but it's not it's not the only factor. Um, 
In in other respects, this was a failure of imagination. Uh, it was a colossal intelligence blunder followed by a colossal uh, operational uh, blunder. Uh, for all the reasons that you've identified, uh, Michael, the uh, Hamas, probably with the assistance of uh, Iran, has been planning this for a long time. Uh, Israel didn't uh, discover the plot uh, in time. Uh, Hamas has been instigating trouble in the West Bank and Jerusalem, and so Israel concentrated many of its regular forces uh, in those parts of the country, leaving the South uh, more vulnerable. And uh, and this was also a failure of imagination in the sense that Israel has become too reliant on technology, and it believed that the Iron Dome system and other technological systems uh, would be able to protect it. But we discovered uh, that we were vulnerable uh, elsewhere. It's just come out recently, though, that uh, someone from Egypt's intelligence had warned Israel, and I guess they passed on that or they didn't at least respond to it the way perhaps they should have. And there was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal that pointed out that Iran definitely was involved in the attack, even though the United States and Secretary Blinken have said there are no real fingerprints that seem to point to Iran. Uh, the United States wants clearly to establish better relations with Iran and renew the anti-nuclear treaty. And also, to some extent, there may have been a catalyst for Hamas because of uh, the unfreezing of uh, Iranian dollars um, and the freedom that was extended to uh, American prisoners uh, who were being held by Iran. I mean, right now we have a situation, I'd like your thoughts on this, where you have all of these hostages and these hostages uh, to be separated from Hamas is very difficult. They're being held as shields probably. They're being held in secretive places. Who knows where they are, in tunnels or whatever. Uh, it's very difficult to get intelligence on that. And there's also the challenge of separating the civilians in this very packed place of Gaza from the terrorists. And they are terrorists. Uh, I mean, they're being seen as heroes and all of that. But, you know, they were, we're talking about decapitating babies and raping women and murderous assaults and so forth. So there are many people in Gaza who would love to find a way out of Gaza. They can't protest. They can't do anything. They're trapped. And the hostages are trapped. I don't know at this point if you can see any light in all of this or any way, any daybreak. They're, they're trapped as as part of a deliberate and um, uh, frankly evil strategy by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, two um, proxies of Iran that have seized control of uh, Gaza in 2006, and for the last 18 years are essentially holding what is now a population of uh, 2.3 million people effectively uh, hostage, uh, using them as slave labor, uh, using them as human shields, and uh, cynically manipulating um, the care that Israel has and the, the, the broader world has uh, for humanitarian uh, concerns uh, for, for Gaza, manipulating that cynically and systematically uh, for their own goals, which is to wage uh, jihad uh, on Israel. I, I do invite anybody who is uh, listening to us to go to their uh, favorite browser and just enter the words uh, Hamas Charter, and you'll be able to find an English translation that lays out Hamas's constitution and sets out its goals. Uh, Michael, I think it's really important to understand 
deeply the ideology and the goals of Hamas. Hamas is actually an acronym. It's, it, it, sorry, no, it's not an acronym. <laughs> it is. Um, it's an acronym. We we wish it was an acronym. Um, it's it's uh, it's an acronym uh, for the Islamic uh, Resistance Movement in Arabic, the Mukawama. Uh, it is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim uh, Brotherhood, and its declared goal is to conduct genocide upon Israel and to build a fundamentalist Islamic. Uh, caliphate on the ruins uh, of the state of Israel. That that is the goal, and everything everything else, including um, Palestinian civilians, uh, is uh, is secondary to that. And it, it is uh, uh, it's an instrument in the in the hands of Hamas and Palestinian is- Islamic Jihad in pursuit uh, of their goal. Uh, when I was talking about the failure of imagination on the part of Israel, there's also uh, an issue of naivety here, because over the last uh, three years in particular, Israel believed that it could reach a modus uh, vivendi with uh, with Hamas. Israel believed that by funneling more uh, money into uh, Gaza, uh, most of it coming from Qatar, um, by providing more working permits uh, to allow Gazans to work inside Israel, uh, Israel was buying stability and peace and, and and improving the economic situation uh, within Gaza. Uh, one of the great tragedies of the last uh, few days is that conception, that notion um, that we could reach some kind of accommodation and uh, that we could try to improve the situation uh, by offering uh, incentives to, to Hamas. Uh, that has been uh, shot out of the water and that leaves us in a very uh, sad and desperate place. Well, originally in the charter that Hamas put forward was the destruction of the state of Israel. And now Israel is saying they want to destroy Hamas. Now, there may be in Israel uh, a sense of wanting to destroy Hamas, particularly given the attack that occurred in the southern part of Israel. But there's some serious and profound difficulties that are raised in that whole notion. Now, they've codified that to some extent. They've said destroy the military installations and so forth. But nevertheless, I think the sentiment now is to want to probably destroy Hamas. And people in Gaza are suffering. I mean, there's no electricity in the hospitals. It's going to be a graveyard. Uh, there's uh, Food is being kept out. Fuel is being kept out. Uh, and the civilians who are under the thumb, as you put it, of Hamas are the ones who are being hurt and victimized by this to a great and profound degree. What can be done about that? I mean, could Egypt, for example, let some of these civilians go through? And uh, in the past, they haven't wanted them, and presumably that's not going to change. But what what is the alternative for them? What kind of hope is there for them, if any? Yeah, so the situation at the moment is that... Um, Israel has stopped providing electricity um, to uh, Gaza. It has not stopped allowing humanitarian aid to come through uh, the border. Um, uh, There is uh, uh, dialogue with the Egyptians to make sure uh, that necessary humanitarian assistance uh, goes through uh, uh, the border. And um, with regards to the water situation, me, there's a lot, a lot less food getting through. There's a lot less staples and essentials sure. getting through. Sure, we're we're in the midst of uh, midst of battle, and so tragically that that has uh, dire consequences. Uh, Gaza, of course, borders two countries, and that is Israel, but also uh, Egypt. 
and there is a large uh, opening, a border crossing uh, between Gaza and Egypt in Rafah, in the in the southern part of the uh, Gaza uh, Strip. So we'll have to see what the Egyptians do. Clearly, as the uh, pressure on the population in, in Gaza uh, increases, and Israel did announce about 12 hours ago that the uh, people living in the northern part of the Gaza Strip should be making their way to the southern part of the Gaza uh, Strip so that Israel uh, would uh, not harm uh, civilians as part of its uh, forthcoming military incursion into into Gaza, which seems to have just have just uh, started. Um, but they're that, destroying neighborhoods, and people who are completely innocent and don't care for Hamas are seeing their neighborhoods annihilated. And there's nowhere for these people to, for many of these people to go, is there? It's a very difficult situation, uh, Michael. But again, the, I mean, the, the what is Israel to do? Uh, Hamas has uh, turned Gaza into a giant uh, terrorist uh, camp on ground, underground. They've hidden tens of thousands of rockets and missiles inside schools and kindergartens and mosques, uh, underground, uh, within within hospitals. Hamas is using United Nations facilities that, that are there to assist the, the civilian population as bases from which to launch uh, attacks uh, indiscriminately onto uh, Israeli civilian uh, population centers. So Israel has, has no choice. It has to defend itself and it has to um, go into Gaza and to try to dismantle those capabilities. That clearly has a cost. Uh, but Israel will do everything that it can to uh, to minimize that, which is its duty under in international humanitarian law. We have a humanitarian crisis nonetheless, though. I mean, it's not like what we see in Yemen yet, but it could be along those lines. And what about Iran's role in all this? I mean, as I said, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal which showed that Iran really did have a much more integral role than has been assumed. And Israel perhaps learned a lesson when Hezbollah went against them on the Lebanese border. Uh, it, it proved to be futile to a great degree. Uh, they're, they, in fact, the Wall Street Journal article says they're being maybe dragged into this so that they can be in a quagmire and so that more hostages can be taken from the Israeli IDF soldiers, which is certainly a plausible where Hamas is concerned scenario. The, the Iranian role is absolutely critical here. And this is something that uh, I think many times people don't connect the dots and don't really understand. Uh, this conflict fundamentally, Michael, is not a Hamas-Israel war. Um, it is a war, an ongoing war waged by Iran, uh, mostly in the shadows, but sometimes uh, explicitly, uh, using proxies uh, against, uh, against Israel. Uh, from an Iranian point of view, Gaza is a base for two of its proxies, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, to wage uh, war against Israel and to put pressure on Israel. But Iran also has uh, a very, very powerful northern proxy, that is Hezbollah, based in Lebanon. Iran has various Shia militias based in uh, Syria and Iraq and, and Yemen. Uh, and so... Uh, we need to understand uh, uh, the context. And you mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia and, and the United States. This is really critical. Um, the nature of proxy war is such that plausible deniability 
is is central to it. And Iran is very savvy, very sophisticated in waging uh, proxy war. And we don't yet know the extent of Iranian uh, involvement. But what we do know is that Iran has right now uh, a strategic goal uh, and a strategic uh, imperative, in fact, two strategic goals. One is to try to ensure uh, that they scupper uh, the efforts to establish a Saudi-US-Israel uh, peace deal, and more importantly, from an Iranian point of view, a Saudi-American uh, defense pact. That is something that the Iranians are trying to uh, frustrate. Um, but there's a second goal as well. Remember that Iran has already enriched uh, uranium um, to over 60%. Um, American officials, Israeli officials, uh, realized that Iran is within two or three months of break breakaway uh, nuclear uh, capacity. Perhaps the current crisis is one uh, that Iran is trying to uh, instigate in order to be able to rush forward and uh, uh, cross the nuclear threshold, which is a strategic goal of the Ayatollahs uh, in Iran. And from their point of view, existential, it will allow them uh, to remain in power uh, in Iran and to dominate uh, the region. So there are certainly overwhelming strategic imperatives from an Iranian point of view to try to sow chaos uh, in, the, in the Middle East. And the possibility of uh, ending the diplomacy or aborting it with respect to Saudi Arabia and the United States seems imminent now. And possibly even the Abraham Accords are endangered now because of what's going on. Plus, you could see the possibility of all of these forces coming together, the Houthis from Yemen, uh, the Hezbollah from Iran, uh, Syria, and so forth, in a united front against Israel. And how much backing can Israel get other than the United States? Uh, President Biden has said, we've got your back, and yet we're fighting to get aid to Ukraine. We're fighting to get aid even to Israel now because our own Congress is in such deep <laughs> division, polarization, whatever word you want to... Anyway, we're, we're going to continue this discussion, but I also want to invite those of you who have comments or thoughts or questions to please feel free uh, to be part of the program uh, that's live now. It'll be, again, available on... Uh, in the future on Apple Podcasts and on uh, uh, a number of other podcasts, including our own, uh, Spotify and so forth. Uh, this is a question from Reed, who says, Hamas's actions were horrendous. Must Israel respond with equally horrendous actions? It may fulfill the desire for vengeance, but how can it help Israel and Israel's cause in the eyes of the world community? It's a really important question because there's always been restraint Israel's always been told to restrain whenever they struck back in a retaliatory way. And Israel's never been hit this hard. And so restraint is not exactly on their minds and you can't, or, or on their hearts, presumably. Uh, but as soon as the smoke clears, there's going to be an accounting uh, and fingers pointing at Israel. And we're at a status now of uh, rising anti-Semitism in the world anyway. So that's just going to get worse, isn't it? Michael, there's no moral equivalence between Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad on one hand and the state of Israel on the other. We need to be unequivocal about that. Uh, on the one hand, you have groups that are using a captive civilian population as human shields to target 
innocent civilians uh, in Israel uh, in the most cynical, horrific uh, way. And we've just we've we've just received the demonstration this uh, Saturday of what would happen if, heaven forbid, uh, Israel was ever overrun by uh, groups uh, like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic uh, Jihad. It was a pogrom. It was a massacre. I don't want to uh, get into graphic uh, uh, details, but we we can use our imaginations and understand what what could could happen uh, in Israel, a second Holocaust, if these groups were ever powerful uh, enough to implement their genocidal um, uh, game plan. And on the other hand, you have a country, uh, the state of Israel, uh, that could face within hours uh, five or six or seven different fronts that is trying to protect its civilian population and that is compelled to take decisive military action because if it doesn't, it will seem more vulnerable and that will attract more violence against it. So that that's the equation. Imagine a situation where a radical jihadist organization has taken over San Francisco, uh, taken over San Jose, uh, holding hundreds of thousands of people uh, captives, in the case of Gaza, it's 2.3 million human beings, and is using that territory to dig tunnels, uh, to develop um, uh, missiles and, and, and rockets. Um, they're assisted by Iran, and they are shelling and bombing innocent civilians living in Cupertino or Mountain View or Palo Alto. I mean, that, that is the reality of the, of, of the situation. Uh, what would you do? What would you do? It's, it's very fraught. It's very difficult. Um, and, um, and, and, and there are no easy answers here. Uh, but certainly, I think we can all understand uh, that there's zero more moral equivalence uh, between these uh, between these actors. And a question from Bill in Austin, Texas, who wants to know: Is there a possibility that Israel will push everyone from Gaza into Egypt and raise the entire strip? No. Um, what um, will happen uh, to the extent that we can foresee, which is difficult is that Israel uh, will issue warnings to the civilian population in Gaza in specific areas, um, as is its duty under international humanitarian law. Israel will try everything it can to minimize civilian casualties and damage uh, in Gaza. Israel is not waging a war uh, uh, against the population in Gaza. Um, despite the fact that the blood is boiling, Israel is not seeking uh, revenge. Israel is seeking to degrade and destroy the military capabilities of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And so what it will do is to ask the population, uh, to warn the population, to clear out of certain uh, uh, specified regions in Gaza, to move through humanitarian corridors to other parts of Gaza, until Israel can clear and secure a certain part of Gaza, and then uh, it will uh, allow the population to go back. It will allow humanitarian aid uh, to come to come in. And once the population is cleared uh, from from uh, areas that still that are still controlled by by Hamas, um, Israel will presumably take action in those uh, parts. We're yet to see what Egypt is going to do. I think there's going to be mounting pressure on Egypt to participate uh, in the 
management of this situation. Uh, in the past, the Egyptians have played a very important role uh, in, in managing these types of situation and also trying to negotiate a ceasefire uh, between Hamas and, and Israel. And I think we're going to see more of those efforts in the coming days and weeks. Egypt also has a population that's really very sympathetic to the Palestinians. Whatever accord they have with Israel is certainly endangered by that, isn't it? No, not at all. Um, Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and Assisi and the uh, entire ruling class of Egypt are absolutely terrified of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, undermining stability in uh, Egypt, let me remind you that in uh, uh, 2012, the Muslim Brotherhood came to power uh, in Egypt under President Morsi. Uh, there was then a, a coup against them in Egypt. And so Israel, uh, Egypt is deeply interested in Israel taking decisive action ag against uh, the Palestinian branch of the Muslim uh, Brotherhood. That is also the case for Saudi Arabia. That is also the case for Jordan, whose own stability is being undermined by the Muslim Brotherhood. And so, Michael, going back to your earlier point, what we really are seeing uh, happening now is a struggle between an Iranian-led axis of chaos, what is called the axis of resistance, the, the Mukawama, and pragmatic Sunni Arab states uh, that have built relationships with Israel, with the United States, with Europe, and there's a struggle over the future of the, of the Middle East. Are we going to live in the Middle East of nation states that respect national borders, that respect the basic principles of international humanitarian law, or are we going to see a Middle East that is awash in uh, atrocities and, and violence, which is what uh, Iran and its proxies want to see? That is, that is fundamentally what is at issue here. Well, I think you're right about the animus that exists uh, from the Egyptian government toward the Muslim Brotherhood and toward the jihadists, but nevertheless, that government was essentially displaced democratically by the Muslim Brotherhood. And there is a great deal of, seems to me, what they talk about in the street in Cairo and in uh, Alexandria in Egypt, sentiments that are in the street are very pro-Palestinian and probably much more allied with Hamas than the government may be allied with Hamas. I just want to make that distinction because I think it's real. But I've got another question from Jerry in Aurora, Colorado, who says, Israel has in-country support, as we have seen in Iran, with the killings of some of Iran's nuclear scientists. Does Israel have that same level of in-country support in Gaza? I'm not sure I understand the question. What do you mean by in-country in support? Well, I suspect what he means, I'm interpreting uh, subtext here, is uh, Israel has operatives. Israel has intelligence and those who are operating like uh, in the series Fauda, if, uh, for those who have followed Fauda in the episodes on, uh, on television. In other words, Israel is, was able to kill Iranian nuclear scientists. Do they have that same capability in Gaza where Hamas is concerned? Do they have operatives or... I'm assuming that's what the import of the question is. Okay, I mean, the answer is, I don't know. And if I did know, I wouldn't be able to <laughs> to tell you. Uh, what is uh, There's a distinction here that I think the uh, the caller is uh, is making between uh, what we call SIGINT, or signal intelligence, which is uh, technology-driven uh, intelligence gathering, and what is called human or human-gathered um, uh, intelligence. And I guess he's referring to the latter, 
Yes. I mean, historically, uh, Israel, uh, whether it's the IDF or the General Security Service, has uh, human intelligence uh, capabilities uh, around the region, including in Gaza, which only makes the intelligence failure of the past few days uh, even more uh, stark. It's astonishing to me, Michael, that Hamas uh, was able to organize this uh, over the course of many months without uh, without leaps, without, without Israel uh, learning about it. How much was known or unknown, whether uh, Abbas Kamal, the Egyptian uh, minister of uh, the intelligence services, uh, warned uh, Israel uh, or not, as has been reported, we'll only know once a commission of inquiry is established in Israel to investigate um, the failures of intelligence and, and the, the subsequent operational failures. But that will happen uh, after the war. But it will happen. We, we will know. I was just about to ask you, Amichai, about whether or not, well, for one thing, this government that's been formed, this unified government, uh, supposedly, uh, with Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu, can really sustain and stay on top of things. Uh, but also, when an investigation takes place, it's there's a lot of finger-pointing at Netanyahu and suggestion that he's responsible for a lot of the failures of intelligence, uh, emphasizing too much what was going on in the West Bank and uh, not giving enough attention to Gaza and all kinds of failures that have been put at his, uh, well, like I said, he's being seen as culpable in many ways, but he's still in charge. He's still the head of state. Uh, I mean, it's a unified government with the former Secretary of Defense and leader Benny Gans, but can this stay unified? Well, he's he's still in charge. He's the prime minister. Um, the government is functioning. Um, as long as Israel is uh, in this immediate uh, emergency, all hands uh, will be on deck. Uh, Israelis will unite. They will they will rally. Civil society uh, will rally behind the leadership. But certainly, everybody's aware that a political reckoning uh, is coming. I just saw a public opinion poll that was published in Israel. Uh, yesterday, where a staggering 86% uh, of the respondents uh, laid the blame for this uh, at the feet of the government and the head of the government, Benjamin Netanyahu. And that includes 79%, staggering 79% of the people who identified themselves as having voted for the various political parties that make up the current coalition. That is stark condemnation. Um, an attribution of responsibility. So I have no doubt that we may very well be on the cusp of a, a realignment of Israeli uh, politics in the aftermath of the of this hor horrific uh, shock, as happened after the Yom Kippur War 50, 50 years ago. Is there any possibility or any glimmer that what has been certainly backed by many here in the United States and in Europe as a two-state solution would even be possible? I mean, the Palestinian Authority or uh, the West Bank operates under a very different kind of system, to be sure, and is almost a separate sovereign state in many ways. But at this point, is that just dead in the water? Well, while while the gun, guns are blasting and, and, and we have this level of uh, violence and chaos, nobody will be thinking about the immediate... Uh, political concessions or political solutions. But 
Michael, there are important silver linings, if we can call 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 them that, you know, under these tragic circumstances, that we should really be aware of. One of the key impediments, arguably the key impediment, to making meaningful progress in Israeli-Palestinian peace building, not Arab-Israeli peace building, because that's been going on very well over the last few years, but specifically Israeli-Palestinian peace building, is this separation, this rift, uh, where Gaza is controlled by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the West Bank is controlled by the Palestinian Authority that is based in Ramallah. As long as Hamas is in control of Gaza, that rift makes making meaningful progress towards peace virtually impossible. So in a way, removing Hamas's control of Gaza opens uh, the door on the possibility of a restoration of some kind of unified Palestinian leadership that is able to assume responsibility for Gaza. And that will allow us to make meaningful uh, progress going forward. But I think I think there's a second and ultimately more important uh, dynamic that we should be uh, aware of. As we've discussed, Egypt is terrified of Hamas. Jordan, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, is terrified of Hamas uh, and other Muslim Brotherhood uh, movements that are undermining stability in Jordan. Saudi Arabia has a vested interest in stability, the UAE, Bahrain, and so on and so forth. What we may be seeing, not out of Arab love for Israel, the Arabs haven't become Zionists, but the Arabs are terrified and they will now be even more terrified of Iranian dominance and aggression, which creates a very powerful motivation for uh, the Arab states to very quickly restore ties with Israel and to try to move forward in building the regional infrastructure um, that would create the conditions under which we may be able to make meaningful progress uh, in Israeli-Palestinian relations. That may involve a greater role for Egypt and Gaza. That may involve a greater role for Jordan and Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis uh, -vis Palestinians in the in the West Bank. But I think that at, at, at a strategic level, everybody in the region will be jolted by uh, fear from Iran and what Iran is trying to uh, do in the region at the moment. And that is something that American diplomacy will have to uh, utilize and will have to build on uh, over the coming uh, months and years. You would think that Hamas would be more allied with ISIS uh, than with Iran. And I'm not only talking about the Sunni-Shia split, I'm also talking about the plain and conspicuous fact that uh, in many respects, I mean, Hamas has been operating like ISIS. Uh, a lot of their behavior certainly mirrors what ISIS has done in terms of the, the just sheer barbaric nature of it. Uh, and I wonder at this point if Hamas, if they can't rally Egypt and uh, the Hashemite kingdom to their side uh, or the, because of the Abraham Accords, uh, the Abrahamic Accords, uh, they can't rally those nations. What about the Palestinians who live within Israel? And what about the Palestinians who are in the West Bank? I mean, do they have at least more of a kind of pull in brotherhood? 
with Hamas that Hamas can exactly lean on, so to speak? Well, part of an integral part of Hamas's strategy, and it's ongoing through social media, uh, through um, claims that El Aqsa, the Al Aqsa Mosque, is 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 in danger. Um, that is an integral part of Hamas's uh, strategy. Hamas is constantly trying to uh, incite uh, violence in Jerusalem, the West Bank, within Israel. Very interestingly, over the last forty-eight hours. Um, Palestinian Islamic uh, Jihad has declared a day of global rage, of, of global jihad. So PIJ and Hamas are trying to link their cause, their local cause in Gaza with the broader global cause uh, of global uh, jihad. Um, and that is certainly part of their strategy. Most of the time, for most Palestinian Arabs, and even more so for Arab Israelis, uh, that is not successful. Um, and by the way, Michael, when Hamas went on its slaughter campaign um, on Saturday, they didn't distinguish between Jews and Arabs. There are dozens and dozens of Israeli Arabs who were murdered uh, by Hamas and PIJ terrorists uh, as they conducted uh, their campaign of slaughter inside Israel. So, and Israeli Arabs are aware of that. Israeli Arabs are are shocked and uh, uh, and 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 horrified by this uh, by this behavior, just as much as any anybody else. And a question comes to us from Tommy in St. Paul, Minnesota, who wants to know who else or what else is funding Hamas, and how can that be addressed? So, Hamas receives um, um, large sums of money directly from Iran. Uh, and directly from Qatar from, as well. And, and, and from Qatar, an estimated $1.5 billion over the last five to seven years has been funneled from Qatar to Hamas. But Hamas is like Hezbollah, a hybrid terrorist organization with a sophisticated uh, regional and global network uh, of uh, activity. Uh, including uh, financial activity. And so there are NGOs, um, this, uh, the, the, there are so-called Dawa uh, charities that raise money for Hamas um, all across the Middle East, in Europe, in the United States, in Canada, and uh, beyond. And part of the struggle against global jihad, part of the struggle against organizations like ISIS or Boko Haram, uh, or Ansar Bet al-Makdis, or indeed Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, is the uh, illicit uh, sources of uh, finance, and increasingly crypto, that is being funneled to these organizations. Let me get back, if I may, to the hostages, because in some ways, of course, uh, Hamas has said they have vowed to kill them, and one could assume that they use them as shields or they become collateral damage and all of that. I hate to talk about this so clinically because, you know, we're talking about human lives and the vulnerability of real people. But I wonder if the hostages were initially taken essentially to be traded for Palestinian terrorists who were being held in Israel. I mean, there was one IDF fighter who was traded for a thousand as I'm sure you're well aware, and many of our listeners, I hope, are aware, one Jewish life for a thousand lives of Palestinians. This is essentially bargaining chips that they are holding and that they want 
In fact, we mentioned Qatar, uh, the, the leader of the Palestinians who spent 20 years in an Israeli jail, wants all of these brothers of his released and understand uh, that that's behind a lot of this hostage taking. So what do you see at this point as being realistically the likelihood of the fate of these hostages or how they'll be used or to what extent they'll be used? There is no doubt that perhaps the most important strategic goal that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad sought to achieve in this operation is to kidnap uh, Israeli soldiers and civilians and take them back into Gaza. And that serves three main purposes. Uh, one is human shields. So having those hostages, they believe, reduces the possibility of Israeli uh, incursions, or at least will make Israel and more cautious. I'm not sure that that is true. Uh, I think Israel uh, doesn't really distinguish between uh, the civilian lives of uh, Gazans and, uh, and and those of um, uh, Israelis who have been uh, kidnapped. Uh, th these are all innocent civilian uh, lives. Uh, secondly, um, as you as you say, uh, Michael, clearly Israel is very very sensitive uh, to. This and in Jewish tradition, um, the uh, notion of pidyon shvuim, the notion of uh, a, a duty to release people who have been uh, kidnapped, taken into to captivity, is very deep deep rooted in in Jewish uh, in Jewish tradition, and Hamas uh, knows that, uh, and 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 so um, they certainly uh, banked on uh, capturing. Uh, um, captives and 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 using them uh, uh, to bargain. Uh, I think they they were amazed by the degree of success that they had. They probably counted on perhaps capturing five or ten or, or at most uh, uh, twenty uh, Israeli soldiers and and taking them back into Gaza. They ended up because of Israel's failure capturing up to one hundred and fifty uh, people. Uh, including a six-month-old baby, including a Holocaust survivor, an octogenarian Holocaust survivor, including uh, 13 French citizens, uh, 10 or 12 Italian citizens, American citizens. So they 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 uh, captured more people than they than they uh, uh, expected. And lastly, um, one of the key goals for Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad is to make the trade. Uh, that you've described, uh, Michael, and try to get Israel to release uh, convicted terrorists that Israel holds in its uh, in its prisons, and to achieve that that huge boost for Hamas uh, and for jihadist organizations all around the world. Look what we've managed to do. We've managed to get Israel to release thousands of terrorists in return for 100 or 150. Uh, captives. So that is certainly uh, a central part uh, of their strategy. It also occurs to me, Amakai, that um, Israel can do a great deal of damage in Gaza, but it's not able, and we've, we learned this as a big lesson for Americans and Europeans after 9-11, you can't really crush the ideology. The ideology is there and it's being spread and there we are. It is it is true that the that, that defeating ideas takes longer than defeating physical infrastructure. Um, that is certainly true. I think we have to be very careful not to be defeatist 
and not to fall into the falsehood that terrorism cannot be defeated. Terrorism can be defeated. And the very existence of the state of Israel, the very fact that it is a creative, thriving human society in the most difficult neighborhood in the world is living proof that terrorism can be overcome. And that should be an inspiration to the United States. That should be an inspiration to the entire free world. But defeating the ideology of groups like Hamas and Al-Qaeda um, is something that um, will take uh, much longer. Uh, but we have to be resolute and we have to be consistent in fighting not only the material elements of these organizations, but the ideological and theological uh, elements uh, that have done so much damage to the, the beautiful civilization, um, Islamic civilization, Arab civilization, uh, and uh, really uh, inflicting tremendous uh, pain uh, on people around the world, primarily Muslims. It is primarily Muslims who pay the price uh, for these murderous ideologies. It's also always saddened me to think of the fact that Palestinians and Jews are Semitic and have a kind of potential, at least brotherhood, that nevertheless has been so undermined and so, well, um, I, I don't want to wax too pessimistic here like you. I want to at least look upon this. It's very difficult, though, because things are very grim right now, and it's difficult to see where the vestiges of hope are uh, going to light. In fact, how long do you think this war is going to last? It's a long, entrenched war, isn't it? It has all the earmarks of that. Well, it depends on, first of all, what kind of war are we going to have? Uh, is this going to remain contained and confined uh, primarily to a Hamas, PIJ, Israel round uh, of confrontation, as has happened already five times in the last uh, decade and a half? Or uh, will this conflict uh, escalate and mutate uh, to include other actors and, and other fronts. So we still have a lot of uncertainty uh, about that. And we should all be working very, very hard to try to, at the very least, contain this conflict and not have it escalate and especially not have uh, Hezbollah enter the fray in full force. Because if that does happen, then we're facing an entirely different uh, and much more uh, challenging regional set of circumstances. Well, what do you see strategically in terms of assistance, not only from the United States, but from the West in general, aside from money? I mean, there's a, uh, an element of our own legislature now that doesn't want to give more money to Ukraine, and probably that will follow suit with Israel. One can almost predict that. And as I said, we've got a Congress that can't find a speaker in the House of Representatives and has all kinds of impediments in terms of moving forward. So... What kind of help is going to be extended here? Or what, kind of, what is the best help other than humanitarian aid, which is necessary on both sides? Well, I think, first of all, uh, a lot of credit needs to go to the Biden administration. Uh, I think they've uh, been doing exactly the right things, uh, certainly over the last uh, week. I'm, I'm putting aside the issue of the planned unfreezing of $6 billion uh, to Iran, which my understanding is that there's now a, a, a freeze on that unfreezing. Uh, but putting that aside, um, President Biden uh, came out uh, with all the right uh, messages. 
to to try to minimize and contain this uh, conflict. Uh, specifically, uh, a resolute, unequivocal statement in uh, support of Israel's right to defend itself, expressing horror at the carnage uh, uh, and the uh, horrific assaults on on civilians, and thirdly, warning Iran and Hezbollah not to get involved. And the United States has already sent uh, military assets to the Eastern Mediterranean that are supposed to send a very clear signal to Iran and Hezbollah, stay out of this fight. So that is really, really important. Um, the United States, um, or Israel rather, uh, um, will need the assistance of the United States to replenish its um, Iron Dome uh, system, its its defensive um, uh, missile defense um, uh, system. Uh, that is something that that Israel will require uh, help with, uh, and then we'll need uh, assistance uh, to stabilize the region and to rebuild. Uh, the economic costs uh, are going to be uh, enormous, and not just for Israel, which is a relatively prosperous and 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 uh, and powerful uh, economy, uh, but also we need to make sure um, that we are able to reconstruct. Um, conditions of, of decent uh, living for the Palestinians uh, in Gaza after after the war. And we need to make sure that Jordan is stable and that, that Egypt is stable. Well, since you mentioned President Biden and speak favorably of the stance that he's taken, I wonder what your thoughts are about former President Trump, who may be the most popular president in Israel that America has ever had. I'm talking about, of course, all of Israel, uh, especially uh the, the more conservative elements in Israel, which are very strong in support of President Trump, uh, were in, and still are. But he comes out and says this would not have happened if he were president. And he said that Ukraine would not have happened if he was president. Now, we know that he can have a lot of hot air and so forth, but one wonders if there's anything to those kind of claims. Well, the most popular presidents in Israel are presidents like Harry Truman, who 11 minutes after Israel's Declaration of Independence declared that the United States uh, will recognize and support uh, Israel. Abraham Lincoln is a hero in Israel. Uh, I was thinking in a more contemporary vein, obviously, but yeah. you're right. Although but I, Truman now, <laughs> because of the Oppenheimer movie, I think is being looked at in a different with a different lens. But we won't go there. You know, let's face it, Trump is very popular in Israel. And what I'm getting at here is Trump's statements to the effect that this would not have happened if he were president. Uh, based on what? You know, I mean, where does he even come up out of out of whole cloth with a statement of that sort? It's mystifying to me. Well, I I, I don't know. I think Israelis are grateful to for, uh, to the Trump administration for for one main thing, which is to to help facilitate um, breakthroughs, uh, historic breakthroughs in in, uh, in relations uh, with the United Arab Emirates, with with Bahrain, and uh, and with other countries. Uh, that is uh, th that that is something that uh, Israelis are very uh, grateful for, and um, Israelis are also very grateful for the efforts of the of the uh, Biden administration to try to broker an historic peace deal with Saudi Arabia. And I think that that is uh, that is really the focus at the moment. Any note of hope in all of this? I mean, you've touched always, a little bit on it before that it may lead to a different political changing of the guard and all of that. But what else? Anything else? 
I wouldn't be Israeli if I wasn't hopeful. Uh, hope, Hatikva, the hope is the title of our national anthem. We're a hopeful, resilient uh, people. And um, I'm also reminded of uh, David Ben-Goyon's uh, famous uh, saying that in Israel, if you don't believe in miracles, you're not a realist. And what do you say to those who say, if you're an Israeli, you're a colonizer. If you're a Zionist, you're a colonizer. This is a new kind of watchword that seems to be cropping up, particularly on college campuses throughout the United States, and especially on the eastern seaboard, but everywhere. I would say that that is a profound uh, misconception born out of a, a lack of uh, basic uh, historical knowledge the links between the Jewish people, the people of Israel and the land of Israel go back for 4,000 uh, years. Uh, they precede uh, the rise of Christianity, the rise of uh, Islam. Jews are have been praying uh, for Jerusalem uh, and have been pining uh, for a return to their historic uh, homeland uh, for 2,000 years. Uh, history bears the idea that if any people on this planet need and deserve a nation state, it's the Jewish people. And from an international legal point of view, it's difficult to find uh, a country around uh, the world, including many countries that we assume to be natural and uh, and organic and, and incontroversial uh, that have received greater international legal support, legal backing than the state of Israel, uh, including in the League of Nations, and in the United Nations. So the ties between the people of Israel, the land of Israel are incontrovertible. There is that that is not to suggest that there's no space in the Holy Land uh, for everybody, uh, for Christians, for Muslims, for Druze, for Chekessians, uh, for Jews. Um, we are an incredibly diverse and pluralistic country and we are made richer in every conceivable way by the fact that uh, Israel is composed of people from every uh, color, every ethnicity, every uh, religion that one can one can think of. Uh, so once the fighting is over uh, and once you can safely get back on a plane and visit Israel and, and, and see it for yourself and experience it for yourself, uh, do it. Israel is not some kind of amorphic uh, symbol. It's a human society uh, with all its glories, all its beauties, and all its uh, challenges. Uh, it, it's 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 no it's no different than any other uh, human society. A good note for us to conclude on. And thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael. And many thanks to all of you who joined us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And uh, thanks to all who will be listening on Apple and Spotify and on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And if you've not yet joined our vibrant community, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, do go to our website at graymatter.show and become a member. And thanks to the Gray Matter exceptional team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Jeff, and Mickey, and to this episode's guest, once again, my gratitude, Amichaim Magin. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.